What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the High Flyers podcast where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase the brightest and most relatable role models and companies and their journey from sunrise to today. As one of the premier products in our Curiosity Center lineup, providing on-demand intelligence, featuring Olympic athletes, business and cultural leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vita Tagawal, and let's have some fun. Today, in this episode 146, I'm speaking with Toby Hall, a highly regarded healthcare executive leader and an experienced board and committee chair. Toby was group CEO of St. Vincent's Health from 2014 to 2022, the second largest non-government provider of hospital and aged care services in the country. He currently has various chair roles, including at Sana Healthcare Group, For Purpose Aged Care, UNICEF Australia, and is an advisory board member for Fujitsu Australia and New Zealand. Learn about Toby Sunrise in Oxford, England, with his father being head of physics at Essex University and mother a music teacher. I was fascinated to hear Toby share his influences, including the different role English glamour played in high school and moving to South Africa at age eight, then working in the music industry and being fascinated by the fashion industry and falling into finance. Questions I love exploring with Toby include, what were the key things he took away and had to delete from his time working at the then prominent investment bank, Solomon Brothers? How to create an environment of allowing team members to be vulnerable the importance of realizing that people aren't just bringing themselves to work, they're bringing their whole life. I asked Toby about the interview process to get his CEO roles at well-known organizations, including Mission Australia and St. Vincent's Health, and listen in for his candid views on the transition from operational roles to board and chair roles, and what is key difference. You might be surprised by the answer. It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Toby Hall, welcome to the show. Hi there, Vedic. Great to be with you today. I am pleased to have you on. You've come highly recommended from our previous guest, Michael Trail. So excited for this conversation. Why don't we start with some fun facts to set the scene? Where were you born and where do you live now? I was born in Oxford in England. Uh, my, my father was lecturing at Ox- Oxford University, but now I live in, uh, in sunny Fitzroy in Melbourne. Very good. And from a work perspective, what was your first job and what do you do now? Okay. My first ever job was actually strawberry picking, uh, which is a kind of student summertime job, which I actually really enjoyed. But I, I was reflecting on this. The, the best kind of work I did when I was younger was I, I helped out at a school for kids with learning and physical disabilities. And that was probably the most enjoyable job. But my kind of first real proper paid job was uh, in accounting, in a small accounting practice. Very nice. And how would you describe your various roles now? So I now chair uh, chair two organisations. I'm just about to chair a third. So so one is a group called Sana Healthcare. We uh, do drug and alcohol rehabilitation. Uh, for uh, privately paid individuals. So we tend to look after people from 
slightly higher socioeconomic grouping with um, drug and alcohol problems. I chair a group called For Purpose Age Care, which is a new age care organisation set up particularly to respond to the need for, I think, higher quality age care services and in simple terms to put the care back into age care. Uh, and I've just joined the board of Integral Diagnostics, who are an imaging uh, business as well. And then aside from that, I do a, a little bit of work with a couple of private equity firms, just advising them on health-related transactions. Just a couple of roles. I, I, I like it. Just a few few roles to keep you busy. <laughs> I should I should also say, because there's other stuff, UNICEF Australia I'm on the board of, which is a, a non-profit, which is, is just a really fulfilling, brilliant, board to be on with an incredible executive team so it makes the board role really really easy which is nice and then also sit on the advisory board for Fujitsu Asia Pacific and again great great leadership team really great environment to work in. I do want to bookmark this topic about boards and and managing dynamics and and relationships so we'll get to this as we go through this conversation and Toby as you know the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer is there a high flyer you know who you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve? Look, I, I think I, I think there's a lot of people in our community who don't get the recognition that they should have. Now, whether we call them high flyers or not, I don't know. But if, if you took, say, the COVID crisis, through the COVID crisis, everyone gave these wonderful kind of plaudits to our health workers and they, they deserve, they absolutely deserve congratulations for the work they did. But the hidden people in that crisis were really the people working in the aged care sector who had to work alongside people whose families couldn't visit, who had personal pressure at home because of COVID-based issues and and often had to do double shifts just to try and keep on top of providing care. So I look at those people as they're, they're the real high flyers in our society that we should uh, really be proud of and exalt and lift up. If there's someone who I think should have gone further in their career, Tanya Plibersek is a politician. I, I think she's an incredible politician. I I wish she was Prime Minister. I hope she's Prime Minister one day because she's just an all-round good, decent person, really caring about not only her electorate but society as a whole. And she's someone who I just wish had kind of bumped up to that next level really as a, as a leader. It's funny you mention her name because she actually goes to the same gym as me, but I've never spoken to her. But I see her working out in Sydney, in inner Sydney, at the same gym. She's there oh, frequently. Cool. So yeah. maybe next time I mention mention you and that might start a conversation. So Sounds good. <laughs> I, I want to wind back the clock, Toby, and, and go to your sunrise, as I call it, your childhood. And as you touched on earlier, there's a few cultural influences there and I can hear a tinge of Kiwi in your accent as well. Talk about your memories of, of childhood. Maybe let's start with the environment because you've had so many different countries you've lived in, right? Yeah, so first part of growing up was in in the UK and we, we lived in a town called Colchester in Essex. For some reason, my, my dad went from Oxford to the bastion of communism and universities in England, <laughs> Essex University, and headed up the physics department there. But Colchester was a regional town about 50 miles out of London. We, we lived pretty close to the town centre but right next to a massive park and a 
massive playing field. And my kind of memories then is you just kind of permanently played outside. Like I don't kind of really have memories of inside the house. I have memories of outside the house. Went to uh, went to a normal local primary school uh, to start off with, and there was a great environment and. Yeah, everyone just kind of hung out together, knew each other, and went to school with each other. So that was uh, that was fun. Then at eight, I actually went to live in South Africa for a year uh, with my parents and lived in Johannesburg, which looking back on that now is a bit surreal in that we, we lived in what now is one of the more violent parts of Johannesburg. And But being a kid there, it was, a, it was an incredible experience. It was just kind of like nonstop sunshine, beautiful place. and we we had servants as part of the household, so gardeners and a housemaid who came from the black community and the lo- both from local tribes. And it, interesting enough, at eight, the thing I could tell is that the two of them didn't like each other because they came from very different tribal groups, which was right. eye-opening. But you kind of the, – the kind of whole politics – when you're a kid, it just goes under the radar. And I, and I kind of look back and think, is there stuff you could have seen? But I, I just didn't notice it at all. But we did notice the poverty when we went out of Johannesburg into um, some of the more regional areas. And, and the poverty there was quite confronting. And, again, it's a little bit surreal to confront poverty when you're a kid. And so that that certainly shaped my thinking. And I think, I think it's kind of at least informed me that, that there are people who have a very, very different experience of life than I do. And I think I've been fairly conscious of that from a fairly young age. When we came back from South Africa, I went to what's known in England as a, a public school, which means you pay to go to it. And I went to a really quite weird public school in that we, we were seven day, six days a week, really about 7 o'clock to 7 o'clock every day. So we were either doing sport, working, homework, drama, those kind of things. And it was quite a strange school. And you called the teachers by their Christian names and we were all kind of seen as on the same level. And I and also, uh, also really it focused more on self-learning. So things like grammar uh, were just totally unimportant. We didn't do grammar. Spelling didn't matter too much. It was wow. quite kind of a different environment which sometimes still gives me problems today because my uh, my written <laughs> written reports and grammar are not quite as good as they uh, as they could be so I sometimes have to fall back on people to help with that so was english but just not a focus in school it just wasn't important they 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 kind of right. took the view that learning learning was more important than getting the grammar and the kind of technical english right and so it was quite a it was quite a different school environment but what what it kind of gave me was that for most people they went to school and had this kind of model of hierarchy and so you had kind of prefect hierarchy teaching hierarchy headmaster hierarchy whereas they actually created this total level playing field where that that hierarchy concept was was really not important and people were treated as equal so it's a little bit strange but it it meant two things i mean i've never been very good at um the kind of uh the respecting authority quite as well as I should do. <laughs> uh, but also also they kind of gave you permission to to question almost everything, including teachers and including what we were learning. And, and actually that's a great trait to have because a lot of education is about learn, write, repeat. 
and not question. And that one of the things that that school, which is great, is they really taught you to question things. Uh, and so I, I enjoyed um, I enjoyed that side of things incredibly at school. Wow, there's there's so many influences that you had at such an early age that that I'm sure shapes you in many ways now. The one around the moves around countries, how do you look back on that now? Do you find that helps you connect with people a lot faster where you you just had to do that as a kid where you had to go into new environments, not just within Australia, but as you said, different countries with different political structures and different cultures? I, I think what it, what it did for me is you, you, you learn to adapt really quickly. And in fact, it's interesting, from a career point of view, I've worked in quite different organisations with really really different mission focuses. I've tended to work in in organisations that have got a clear purpose, but often quite different outlooks. And what what you learn by moving around is you learn to adapt. You have to learn to understand what what is the local culture, what are the things around you which are different, how, and how do you kind of work with those and adapt to them and live within that culture? And like, for instance, going to South Africa I and mean, the school system there is outrageous in terms of discipline compared to what, what I had in England. Like you, you put one foot out of line in South Africa and you get smacked over the hand with a ruler and do too much wrong and you're going to the headmaster and get caned. And so you kind of learn suddenly where there's a whole new level of kind of behavioural expectations you have to adapt to. And I think it does help you learn to adapt to with different cultures that you have to engage in. And that's important in the corporate world. And it kind of goes across, for me, I think it's allowed me to be able to be pretty comfortable in a range of different environments. And certainly in most of my long-term roles, like I could have a day where I'd be sitting, spending time with a homeless person in the morning and a kind of prime minister or senior politician in the afternoon. And you've got to be able to, interact and work in both those communities and be able to understand how to play i'm naturally i'm probably better sitting down with a homeless person to be honest than i am with the kind of <laughs> prime ministers uh and i feel comfortable in that space but yeah i think it helps that movement helps to helps you learn to adapt and understand that you have to see the culture differently and actually i play that out in organizations the one thing i really learned and i'd say to people when you go in as a leader in organizations you have to spend time to understand the history you have to spend time to learn to understand the culture uh and that that's not kind of what's written down in books it's actually speaking to people hearing learning how do we how do we behave around here what really happens what what are the things which are culturally important because if you don't learn those things you can absolutely trounce on a on a organization and fail completely because you actually haven't understood how it ticks how it thinks and so that learning is a really powerful thing for people in organizations i think totally i do want to spend a good chunk of a later part of this conversation on this topic because i feel you can share a lot of learnings with our with our audience and and it's something that i i personally find really interesting like i could sit and talk about this topic for hours is but i do want to go back to childhood for a second and and talk about the transition around when you were 18 because i feel i feel 18's age where we've got some understanding of self and some understanding of the world yeah what what did you want to do with do with life particularly because as you said you've had this unique upbringing around the world and you've traveled with your parents. How did that shape you? Like, did you want to follow in the footsteps of your parents or were there other ideas? 
Uh, I definitely didn't want to follow in the footsteps of my parents, even vaguely. My, my dad was a head of physics and my mum was a music teacher. And I definitely didn't want to be a teacher of any kind. As I said, I wasn't good with authority and kind of said teachers, they're authority figures. There's no way I was going to be one of those. I, I think at 18, I think like a lot of 18-year-olds, I didn't really know what I wanted to do at 18. I didn't have a clear kind of view. I I did know the things I loved. And, and so I did want to spend time on the things that I loved and cared about. And at that age, and I'll be pretty frank about it, I loved music and I was lucky enough to get to work, for, work in the music industry for a period of time in the UK. I, I actually always loved the kind of finance concept of the buying and selling, the difference between that and making a profit and and trade. I, I always liked, and as it goes, some people will know this about me, but not many. I always liked, I always liked fashion when I was a kid. In fact, if it, if you'd asked me at eighteen what I wanted to do, I probably would have been quite happy saying eighteen. I'd just go and work in a, a men's clothes shop. I would have been pretty cool with doing that. Interesting. Uh, so I failed. I failed in that ambition completely. <laughs> <laughs> so, so went went into finance and I think and accounting basically because it was there and I could. And my wife and I had had a child when we were pretty young, and so I had to get out into the workforce to earn a living. And yeah, you know, I kind of fell into finance. And actually, as it turned out, I was really good at it. And if you'd asked me at school, would I be good at it I don't I don't think I would have said yes but I had a really I, I had two brilliant bosses who are both totally different to start off my career one one was kind of one of the angriest people I've ever worked with but at the same time phenomenally supportive and brilliant at teaching you and he he probably more than anyone else taught me about business and working there taught me about the difference between people who succeed and fail. So, and, and basically because you got to see a whole range of businesses, you got to see their financial performance and you kind of wake up and go, how is it these four businesses that are exactly the same? One of them is making a huge profit. One of them is making loss and the other two are kind of doing somewhere in between. What is it that is driving the successful one that makes the difference? And I saw that time and time again, and being able to see the numbers and how they work, to me, kind of intuitively helped you understand the business. And pretty much, I'll still say to people today, when I look at any organisation, I want to understand the flow of money and cash through the business. Because once you can understand that, you know who your customers are, you know how good your people are at managing what they do, and you also know it doesn't matter whether you're in a for-profit organisation or not-for-profit organisation. In fact, there's no such thing as a not-for-profit organisation. Every organisation has to make a profit. And you under- once you understand that flow, you've then got a hope of structuring the business successfully to achieve. And so I learned a lot in that first Account, accounting and finance business and then went into Salomon Brothers and investment bank in the finance team and learned a lot about people there and had a had a brilliant manager who basically was like if you can do something I'll give you the job 
and if you're ready to go to the next level, I'll give you the job. And if you just keep doing, 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 I'll keep pushing you as far as you can go. And, and in a really short period of time, I was looking after probably way more responsibility than a traditional English style organization would allow me to do just because she gave me the leeway to do it. I did it well. And I happened to, and this maybe comes back to that cultural thing we talked about. I happened to be one of the few people who got on with our American office people really well and was able to engage with them and talk to them and understand where they were coming from. And one of the things, banking is a really interesting sector, but the settlements function in banking is really key because it's where all the money flows. And you want to know where your money flows in banking. And the guys in New York who ran that were all Italians who pretty much, if they didn't like you, you were done for. You just couldn't get anything done. But I, I I got on with them really well, understood how they were culturally, understood when they were busy, when they weren't busy, and, and created a really good relationship, which kind of helped my job uh, prospects, which was great. And there, the Salomons was absolutely meritocracy, and I got some huge opportunities to do stuff at a young age that I wouldn't have got in most organisations. So, yeah, I was really lucky with that start career-wise. I could, Toby, I could just listen to you speak all day, but I'm sorry, I do need to ask you questions. Otherwise, I could, just right. go on, I could just go on this storytelling listening with you, which is, which is fantastic. And I love how you're recounting particular examples. I, I would love to double click on that Solomon Brothers time because that was something Paul, who you connected me, mentioned that it was a really interesting period, but I don't want to go into the company itself. But what did you take from that as you left? And, and maybe the framing here is, what did you have to delete from your mind from that experience and what did you carry into your future roles? Yeah, so de- deleting from my mind is really interesting because you, when, you, when you work in an organisation like that, you buy into the hype and at the time the hype was this is the world's leading investment bank. We're the smartest, the brightest. Anyone would like just beg for a job here and – and we're going to just take on the world and do everything. While I was there, they set up a thing called the Mortgage Corporation, which was the forerunner of the Lehman Brothers collapse, uh, which came many years later. But they said, we're creating a whole new market of debt and amalgamating the debts of our mortgages, which is really exciting. The trading teams were brilliant. It was, it was a really, really great environment. But then six years into my career there, uh, three of the leading people at the bank, including the CEO, decided that it would be, I think, for the first time, at least publicly acknowledged by one of the American banks, a great idea to rig the um, American Treasury bill interest rates. And so they went through and did that and did that for a period of time and got and then got caught. Not surprisingly, people who do that sort of thing tend to get caught at some point or other. And it, it created a massive crisis for the bank not surprisingly, and and it ended up Warren Buffett came and bought the bank out of basically a pretty tumultuous period at, at a good price, which he's kind of good at doing. And I guess when, when, when you've kind of grown up in this, we've got integrity, we're a brilliant organisation, we're striving to do really well, and then the leaders who are ahead of you basically absolutely trounce on that. It does kind of give you a uh, kind of confidence crisis in in leadership and so certainly I, I left that probably cynical about some of the messages you hear from leaders uh, and kind of questioning really 
kind of closely how how honest they were. And the other thing at the time which I, I looked at was a lot of the people who were ahead of me and these guys were everyone and ladies were all doing financially really well. But a lot of them, their, their actual personal lives and their kind of work-life model wasn't actually that much to aspire to. When you kind of sat back and look at 26, do I want to be like this guy at 35? I already knew at 26, well, no, I don't want to be like that. <laughs> um, and just kind of living um, living what is a very standard kind of, you know, okay, wealthy-ish English life. There's a lot lot that you kind of look at and go, well, there's a lot of trappings that go with that, but not many of them seem to be very happy. And that I definitely left with. So I left with this kind of thing of there's not a happiness there. And also you got to think really carefully about the messages that come through from people because you just don't you, – you, you just have – and I guess this comes back to earlier when I talked about questioning everything. It kind of just reminded me you always have to question everything and and look at it really carefully, which sometimes is a good trait. Sometimes you can come at things a little bit too cynically as well. And to timestamp this, this was quite early in your career, right? So you mentioned yeah, six yeah. years. This was six, six, seven years in yeah, your so career. So I would have been, yeah. I would have been 25, 26 when that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So this would have really influenced the, the, what's happened since. Cause yep. I, if my research is correct, post this, you went to New Zealand. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So we, we went, uh, about three years after we went to New Zealand, and in New Zealand, I had I really had some kind of profound experiences because I'd always I kind of always liked the focus on people. I was really lucky to have bosses that really cared for me. But New Zealand was probably more so than anywhere else. I kind of the the failure of society to make the best of people really struck me in New Zealand, particularly. I had, I had a couple of experiences uh, with some employees who were just really smart people that society had let down and also met people in the community in very similar circumstances. And it, it kind of threw me at first because it, it just seemed wrong. And I, I've to, told the story of Zena many times. <laughs> Zena's probably fed up with me telling the story. But I had this lovely lady, Zena, who, who worked with me, but she – we kind of engaged because she she was annoyed with me about something and and went crying into my boss's office saying what a terrible leader I was and how horrible I was and how mean I was, which may, maybe was true and I wasn't trying to be like that, but I would have been like 29, 30, so it's possible. And I've got to say I sometimes look back in horror at my leadership at that age just because you learn so much as you go on. But anyway, so the boss called me in and said, why did you make Zena cry? And I said, well, I just asked her to do a job, really. And he said, oh. And, and he said, well, you can't have Zena crying. And I said, no, I know you can't. But I talked to him and said, you know, have you had this happen before? And he said, yeah, pretty much everyone. She comes in at some point and complains about. And I just said to him, do you want me to sort this out? once and for all, and he turned around and said, yeah, go, you can. And so I called Zena in and said, okay, Zena, we're going to have a discussion. And the, there's a door there, and if you want to get up and leave, you can leave the organisation. But if you don't want to get up, go and close it and come and tell me why, why you get so upset all of the time. So she got up and she shut the door and she came and told me. 
pretty much our life story. And this is one of the things which I've learned is listening to hear people's stories is really important to kind of culturally mm-hmm. understand them, listening to hear organisation stories. In our Indigenous communities, we, we kind of talk about the voice right now. Listening to the voice of people is a really, really important thing. So she told me her story. And basically at 15, she got pregnant. She got sent away uh, to a basically to a nunnery. She had the baby and came back. And the baby was brought up as her little sister. And basically everybody in the town knew she was the girl who got pregnant and got sent away. She never finished high school, which meant she was destined basically to work either in basic administration jobs or in, in the supermarket doing checkout for the rest of her life. That was it. And that and that, that was the reality of the society she lived in. And she lived like that till 55 years old. Wow. And she was kind of depressed and angry and uptight and also very intelligent. And it became clear to me as we talked that she was really smart. She had good understanding. And I said to her, look, what do you want to do about it? Because I'm sure we can find a way to kind of help you do more to kind of challenge your thinking. And she actually said, I already know what I'd like to do is a course at university, which is a one-day course on archiving. Now, archiving to me is the most boring subject on the planet, but she actually really liked it. And I said, well, go and do the course. So she went and did the course. And at the end of the day, she got a certificate and came back. And she showed me and she said, that's the first certificate I have ever had in my life for anything. Anyway, this time went by. I kind of really encouraged her to do more study, more learning. And she got better and better at work, didn't get grumpy with people anymore. In fact, was more respected because the better she got at her job, which is an important one, the more she helped people. She felt validated. People were like, oh, my goodness, what's going on? Because she's really helpful now. And actually, she went on to study and then eventually teach around archiving. It was just profoundly different. She got, I think she went on to diploma studies and she said she's the first person in her family who ever had a diploma or anything like that. But what it taught me is there are so many people in society who – we write off and assume they don't have skills. And through my career, I've been able to work with people in the justice system, people with drug and alcohol problems, people who are homeless. And what I've found is there is I, I've, I don't think I've ever met someone who doesn't have gifts and talents. But what I have found is a lot of people who society hasn't let express those gifts and talents. And in the, in the workforce, we have this pool of underutilized people because we put them into boxes and said hey this person once they're in administration doesn't have gifts and skills and so they're left to kind of just do basic work rather than being pushed and challenged and great workforce is a bit like early on in my career i think work with people to say how do we stretch you to be the very best you can be in your context now that plays out for a homeless person as much as it does for a CEO or a board member, is actually saying that we should have an onus on ourselves to excel and be everything we can with the gifts and talents we've been given. Now, for each person, those gifts and talents are different. But my experience is there's way more talent in society than is shown because the way organisations are constructed, the model we have doesn't let people shine in the areas that they're skilled at. And one of the things great leaders can do is try and untap the skills that people have got. So I learned that from Zeno. It was an incredible gift to learn. And it reinforced for me, particularly the need to listen, and probably almost from that point onwards with people, I've tried to spend time listening to hear people's stories. Because when you hear people's stories, you can help understand them and who they are. And I've had 
this debate a lot around leadership teams because my leadership teams would always start with check-ins on how are you personally? How's the story of your life going? What's working? What's Can not working? Can I ask working? on that, how do you get authentic answers? Because I've done this as well where you fall into a trap of going, Toby, how are you? And you go, good. What about you? And I go, good. And you just get on with your day. How do you get authentic answers in a team meeting where people don't want to open up? I, I think some of it is creating the environment and being vulnerable yourself. And so as a, as a leader, you have to be prepared to be vulnerable. Like, as, a, as a person, there's a ton of stuff I'm, I'm really, really strong at and good at. And I'm really lucky from that point of view, but there's a whole lot more that I'm useless at. And so being upfront about, you know, I had like a really bad week last week. I kind of saw some stuff happen or I did some stuff which wasn't up to my standard from a values point of view that I'm disappointed about and I'm happy to share. And look, I'll give you an example. One organisation, this is going back 20 years because I remember it quite vividly. It was probably the last time I really yelled at someone at an organisation and I might be tempted to do the same again because what they did was pretty bad. But I kind of yelled at someone and, like, immediately afterwards I knew I shouldn't have yelled at them. Uh, but at the next leadership meeting I said, look, I was just so uptight about what they'd done. I shouldn't have done it. It's not kind of how you want to be from a values point of view, but I did that. But as soon as you do that, it gives permission for other people to go, actually, yeah, look, this is something I, I didn't get right, I didn't get wrong. Now, why all that stuff is so important is, is that when your leadership team comes to work, if, let's take our CFO. So our CFO comes to work on Monday morning. What's really coming to work is a CFO with their kind of head switched on, but it might be a kid sitting at home who's just a nightmare and having really big problems at school. It might be their mum's just about to die or go into hospital or got to go into aged care. It might be their dog just got knocked over. I don't know what's going on in life. But when they come in on Monday morning, they're not just bringing themselves, they're bringing their whole life. And if you don't have some context of that whole life, it's really difficult to manage them when they're going through a difficult circumstance. And a lot of places you wake up and go, oh, why is the CFO being really crap this week? He hasn't kind of been on his game it's just not kind of not really happening but if you know them well enough to be able to share hey what's going on in life then you understand okay i got to give some leeway and latitude to them because of what's happened over the last few days and maybe i'm going to have to do that for the next couple of months and it allows you to say that's okay and if you need help let's work out how to support you through this period of time but if you don't have that understanding you just kind of look and go oh that person's not performing I, I feel on that one of the unspoken parts of that is you as the leader in that example, you have to be in a headspace where you are good and, and life outside of work is good and you're getting your sleep and eat and, and, and what have you. How have you found that? Because even just the way you're talking, there's a level of calmness and groundedness there, but I'm sure there's periods where you're in back-to-back -back meetings and you're context switching and your kids need to be picked up, but you can't think outward. You're, how do you yeah. manage those times? Can you do you can you now spot them in yourself? Yeah, look, I there's a, there's a few things. I, I first I think firstly for leaders, particularly in larger organisations, physical fitness makes a difference, and I I put a lot of effort into physical fitness, and I I, I remember I was taught this. At, 
39 by a guy who trained older people uh, to get physically fit again. And he, he just looked at me and said, how old are you? I'm like, I'm like 39. He said, look, go out, get fit, stay fit. It'll help you at work, but it'll keep you fit well into your 70s. And it's good, it's good for your mental health. It's good for your physical health. So I put a lot of focus on that. I run mostly. That's my kind of biggest exercise. I love to do that. And that that does help put you into kind of, I think, a good mental space. But there's there's a point where you have to choose as a leader to respond wisely to what's happening around you. And I think good leaders largely should be calm, even in the face of a storm. And so being comfortable, I, th- I think what steps into that, the physical thing helps really well. The second thing which I think helps really well is you've actually got to be comfortable with who you are as a person. And if you've got that comfort as who you are as a person, I think that makes a big difference in terms of how you lead because when you're at a very busy time, things are going crazy, you don't have to second-guess yourself about is everything going to be okay? are we going to get through this? Because you kind of know you're going to get through it. And so you have to say, well, look, I'll take what's in front of me now, but I'll take it in a measured kind of balanced way and actually know that we're going to land and it will be okay and the issues that are in front of us will go away. One of the best pieces of advice I got from the mentor, in fact, it's a, a guy, Phil Cronican, who's at National Australia Bank, he, he said to me, when, when you're looking at issues as a leader, just, just stop and look and say, am I going to care about this in five years' time? Yeah. Because there's so many little crises that we look at today which we kind of blow up into this massive issue that, to be honest, we won't even care about in a month's time, let alone about in five years' time. And so we have to be able to step in and say, what is the context of this situation? Now, if it's a situation that is going to be a problem in five years' time, then you want to think long and hard about it. You don't necessarily want to panic, but you want to think long and hard about it. But it also means that some of the smaller irritants that kind of can get to you as a, as a leader, you can just switch off from because you can actually say, this really doesn't matter. It's not going to be a problem. It's going to move. Time will move, we'll, we'll move on. We won't think about this. And look, a classic example, through COVID, I, I would have worked – pretty much seven days a week for three months nonstop at the start of COVID and long, long hours. But through that, I think I I actually continue to exercise through that. Might have been occasionally in Victoria since we had such harsh rules, might have occasionally even breached the um, distance (laughs) rules I was allowed to exercise. But focused on continuing to do that, but also – focused on having context about what was important and what wasn't. And I think that's what great leaders can do. And therefore, even in the face of kind of quite big challenges, you can stay fairly calm because you know that you'll get through and sort it out. Mm. I'm, I'm conscious of time, but I do want to change tact. You've done a few CEO roles. You've done, I think, Mission Australia. You've done St. Vincent's, and I'm sure there's more that are not on your, on your public profile. Yeah. We could spend hours going into each of the roles, but what I'm curious about is the interview process to get the roles. How did you demonstrate? I know you sit on boards now and you probably help select the leader. How did you demonstrate? You could you can pick an example, whether it's St. Vincent's or Mission Australia or or another example. What was that process to 
get the role? And what are your reflections now? I think, um, it, like, the roles that I've gone, particularly Mission and St. Vincent's, I, I was approached about the role, so I wasn't looking for a role at all. In fact, when St. Vincent's first approached me, the, the chair, who, who's a, probably the best chair I've ever worked with, a guy called Paul Robertson, he said, he said, would you have a look at the role? And I, and I said, well, let's have a coffee and talk about it. And what I was able to do is say, look, these are the things I care about. And if they align with St Vincent's and what St Vincent's is going to do, then that's great. But if they don't, then there's no point in us talking. But he, he talked through what he wanted to do and really particularly at St Vincent's focus on the purpose. And once he'd done that, I realised it's something that I could get passionate about. And my, my overriding view, whether you, you want to be a CEO, a board member, or a, just come onto the team, the thing I look for more than anything else is people who are passionate about what the organisation is doing. Because there'll be times where you do work for three months, seven days a week, 12 hours a day, and if you're not passionate, <laughs> you'll switch off. And so I, I kind of look for passion. And I think once you've got a passion for the job, then it's a question just my view is be yourself, go along, tell people how you are. I'm kind of at the point of if people don't like how I am, it's kind of no skin off my nose. So I'll get on with life. I can get someone else. But just be open about who you are and what your skill base is and, and frank about what you can do and what you can't do. And, and actually a lot of the time I look for people really to show they can understand themselves and be passionate. And they've got those two kind of things together. You can kind of train most of the skills they need in the organisation. Then with a, with, with a CEO job, you tend to go through these big interviews. You've got eight or nine people around you all kind of looking at you. And if you're not yourself and trying to act up as being something different from yourself, one of them is going to pick up on it. And if you're not really passionate about the role and what it's about, they're going to pick up on it. And so my kind of view is just go in, be yourself, be comfortable with what you're good at and what you're not good at. You don't need to kind of give any kind of story on you can do all the stuff that you can't do and talk about what you really care about. And a lot of time I think boards are looking for people who've got a drive and a passion. And so you need to be able to do that. CEO's got to be able to carry the organisation. And so you have to be able to storytell as well. And being able to storytell in that group environment is important. So I've always kind of taken the view of being able to share stories is important. And and also like not not getting thrown by things which like, sometimes you'll get curly, curly questions and you just have to kind of learn mm. to take those. Mm. And and I've kind of found through those processes, it's weird as a CEO, if you've never done it before, and I've said to a lot of people, just go through a CEO interview process, even if it's not the job you want, because you need to understand what it's really like when you get into it because it's quite a different environment from the normal role. But, yeah, I've kind of learned to be myself. And so St Vincent's kind of happened really naturally. It just kind of flowed and it happened. In fact, mission was pretty much the same. It just kind of was the right fit from a purpose and outcome point of view. I kind of always feel when I go for these jobs, I never think I'm good enough to do the job. 
as a CEO, I'm always kind of like perplexed why anyone would give me the job to do it, but somehow, somehow they're stupid enough to give me the job. Mm-hmm. Appreciate the appreciate the humility. I think you're under, underplaying yourself, which is <laughs> which is maybe a trait of a good leader, as it raised maybe from your experience. Two two follow ups to that, and, and maybe you can decide which one you want to answer. They're kind of on the same vein of learning. One is what's evident from your transitions is you've. You've transitioned industries, like mission to St. Vincent's is two different industries. Sure, the CEO role, as I'm sure your answer will have crossover, but there's two industries. And Abby, who you connected me, said she was always impressed with you were able to sit comfortably, not fully understanding at all. Yeah. But you were able to empower people. And as you said at the start, you were able to understand the business and the dollars and cents of the business yeah. and also the people. What have you learned about going into a new environment and understanding the problem and building a solution around it? So, so I got kind of a, a simple kind of way of doing doing this. The the first thing is you have to do research on the businesses that you're going into before so, you start. Yeah, absolutely. Before you start, so my approach has always been go and research to death the organisation, the field it's working in, and the work it's doing. So I can tell you, at St Vincent's, I, I spent two months going through looking at best practice globally on healthcare, what was happening around the world in Europe and America, in the healthcare world, what were the traits that were being followed, what were the trends, what what was starting to happen, what were the kind of really intellectual global thinkers looking at in healthcare. So I kind of understood the macro level of the space. I then spent time and actually deliberately sought out some people who are working in the healthcare space to say, can you help me understand some of the dynamics around this? St Vincent, I remember one of them said to me at St Vincent, you shouldn't go there, you're crazy going there, there's uh, too much cultural turnaround to do. But we, we managed to do the cultural turnaround, which was great. But spending time with people who understand the sector and then talking to people who are important in the space, so people in politics, people in the kind of sector bodies, just to kind of understand what's the view of the place, and you've got to do that research. Once I've done that, the next thing I do is when I go into an organisation, I invariably want to spend time with frontline workers. And literally, I think at St Vincent's, I spent probably the first 10 to 12 weeks with frontline workers, like nurses, people in the aged care space, frontline managers, to understand the organisation dynamic at their level because my general experience is they they understand the true culture of the organisation, they embody whatever the true culture is and it's them who make the net promoter scores, it's them who make the profits and it's them who usually understand every failed dumb idea that some chief executive had in the past. And so I spent a lot of time at the front line to understand the culture, how the thinking is, to, to before I'd, I'd make any decision because it's naive and stupid to kind of think you can just go in, have an agenda and do a turnaround without doing that. So I, I sp- spent a lot of time doing that. From that point onwards then, I, I think this comes down to the kind of discussion we had about listening to people listening to the experts in the field, so listening to doctors, listening to people in the field and hearing their experience and trying to learn and ingrain as much as you can. I'm, I'm kind of lucky in that I've got a fairly good memory, so once I've kind of had the discussion with people, it sticks with me quite well. That that process, I think, is really important when you come into a new organisation. And at some point you can start to build what I say is a hypothesis of 
this is where we should head and this is where we should change. This is what's working in this environment and this organisation. But actually, this is maybe the problem that we need to fix. And with that hypothesis, spend time talking to people about it. Say, does this sound right? Does it gel with you in terms of discussions? And even going back to some of the people on the front line and saying, hey, this is what I'm thinking. So I've, I've always put that time and effort in. And ironically, it's interesting, like literally within two years of being at St Vincent's, I was going to speak on health conferences on the kind of requirements for the health system in Australia uh, alongside people who have been speaking for 20 years. And what I'd say is a lot of people in their industries are lazy. I know this sounds really tough, but they don't do the effort. They don't do the research. They don't look at what's happening around the globe. They don't look at what best practice is. They don't look at their competitors to say, well, what are they doing that's better than us? What are they doing that's, that's different from us? Why are they having an impact? You, you've got to kind of constantly be curious and constantly question everything. And this kind of goes back probably right to the permission that, that early school days to question everything. Mm. And like my kind of view is even, even when you kind of, you might have had a brilliant year as an organisation, might be the best year in history, you've done stuff so well and you're kind of, everyone's pumped and really kind of, oh, we've we achieved so much. That's the point we need to turn around and say, all right, what can we improve? What can we do differently? And how do we, how do we get to the next stage of how we can be? And that drive kind of plays out for organisations, it plays out for individuals to say permanently we should be pushing to say what's the next thing I can do, what's the next opportunity, how can I stretch myself some more? And I think having that mentality of belief and questioning is really vital. And if you lose that, then the organisation is going to have problems. And one of the great things about, say, St Vincent's and Mission Australia is that they, they were research-based organisations, which meant inherently they always questioned everything. And in health, everyone is always looking and saying, how can we do this better? And I think in organisations, when you get to the point where you're comfortable, where you're happy, where everyone's kind of on a roll, the culture's really good, if you lose the ability to question, you wake up in two or three years' time as a tired, stayed, we're not changing organisation. So that continual questioning to me is vital and continual learning. And what I'd always do is if I got to a point as CEO and I was kind of like not having a great day, things weren't working well, I'd always go back to someone on the front line and say, can I spend a couple of hours with you because I want to see the real reason we do this work and I want to understand are we helping you do your job as well as we can and learn from that. And that always gave me energy as well to keep that questioning and improvement going. Great insights. I've got so many topics to cover, but maybe the last one that we can go into before we move to rapid fire is transitioning from operational roles to board and chair roles where I haven't done it. I'm much younger than you, but I have heard people say that it takes a while where they're used to being at the wheel and then you're kind of at the back being a spectator and a commentator. Take us inside that the first time you, I don't know if it was post St. Vincent's or if you had a period in between when you got your first chair or board role and you stepped away from operationally managing a business. Yeah, I, I, I actually see in some ways, I, I think the chair role and, and board roles are not that different from CEOs who do their job really well. 
in that what you should be doing is empowering other people to get on and do their work really well. You should be looking for experts who can deliver outcomes alongside you. And you should be creating an environment where you can help them thrive and do well and also accept questions and challenge. So the transition for me in some ways has maybe been easier by firstly working with a couple of privately owned businesses where you don't necessarily have the focus on governance around compliance. You have the focus on what is the business here to do? How do we drive the outcomes? And as a board chair in that environment, I try and work with the CEOs to help them really be the best they can be and to really push them to say, are we really delivering everything we can? Are we getting everything out, out of our people? Are we being hungry enough? Are we challenging ourselves enough? And as an example, I mean, one of the businesses is in the aged care space and we've been pushing and discussing how do we increase the occupants in the aged care space? And the team kind of initially, I think, found the question hard because, you know, they're working hard, they're doing everything, but then that they've gone and done some work and one of the sites has now gone to 100% occupancy for the first time in its history because they've kind of they've actually had questions and they've, they've kind of thought, well, maybe there is a different way of doing this. They've gone and tried it and it's worked. And that, that kind of process of moving to just a, a slightly higher level, I think, is key. I, I do think, though, boards have got to step back and, and have faith in the management teams to do things. And that's where the biggest difference is that your step back is a lot bigger than when you're in an executive role. And so you've got to have a real confidence in the people who are there to run the place and run it well. And I, I always kind of taken the view that I'll give in any organisation a team member as much latitude as possible to succeed. And if they're succeeding, I just let them get on and do that. And, and to be honest, get out of their way and just let them do well. And I think that's the same on a board. But then there's times where boards do have to step in and say, hey, why are we not delivering what we expected? Why are we off strategy? Do we need to do things differently? Does the team need help? And so I, I haven't found it too difficult a transition. Uh, that's easy for me to say. It might be the people we work with me look at it, look at it very differently. But hopefully, uh, I think what I'd say as a board member and a chair, I kind of hope to say to people, I just want you to be kind of making sure that we're we're really delivering and being the best we can be, and that you're being the best you can be. And if if that's if that's happening, then I think that's all you can ask for, really. Yeah, hopefully that helps. Mm. I realise it's not a clear-cut question, so there's yeah. no clear-cut answer. Yeah. Everyone's got their own experience, so your experience is valuable. I could keep going, but maybe we'll leave some questions for part two when we do that at some point in the future. But I want to move to final rapid-fire sprint to close us out. Is there one investment outside of work that you've made that you consider the best to date? Oh, look, investment in people is always is always the best. 
investment you can make in life. And so that that, that I'll just say, I know it sounds kind of corny, but it, it's it's worth more than anything else. Look, the investments I've, I've kind of seen and been involved in uh, recently, the one I'm most excited about, which ha- hasn't come to fruition yet, is with a company called OHO, uh, which I think is doing some really brilliant stuff using blockchain technology to help deal with, with, with registers of child safe workers, uh, registers of uh, clinical qualifications. Uh, it's a, I've got a really simple model to help help businesses manage uh, their people, in, and particularly where they've got to have um, compliance and requirements around their employment. I really like their business. It's got a great leader who I think is going to deliver great things. So I like that investment. That's a that's a good one. Is there one thing you'd like to learn in the next six months? Ab- absolutely. I'm, I'm going to be. Chairing an ASX uh, board uh, starting on the 29th of November, and I, I want to learn how to work in that space well. I want to learn how to be a good leader in that space. I think that in that space, I need to learn the dynamic of working with investors, and it, it's it's kind of like a whole new world. And it's a bit like I said when going into the CEO gig, you kind of come in and you have to learn a lot, and so I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that learning. The other thing I really want to focus on in the next six months, which I've I've seen, and I'm really focused on, is is that particularly in Australia, I don't think we're as agile or as fast as we need to be in a lot of our businesses. And I want to learn how to get faster at delivery and still deliver really good quality. And I think that's a skill I. I I see a gap in probably all the organisations I'm working with. It's not to criticise our teams; they're great people, but we've, we we through COVID found out how agile we could be, and I want to work out how do we get that to become part of how we operate as an organisation and the organisations I'm in. That's music to my ears. I, I work in the VC venture capital space, and innovation. I think Australia could do leaps and bounds, and and take on the US and China in that yep. with innovation. So absolutely would love to see how you make an impact there. And and last one, Toby, is there one person, a quote that inspires you today? Mm, that's a tough question. Or a or a value in life that you live or a mantra that but you follow? My, my, kind of, my, my kind of mantra is basically help people be the best they can be. And what that allows is to take anyone in any context and say to them, we need to work together to help you be everything that you're made to be. And I think if there's a sadness in our life and in the society around us, when, when we fail to let people shine to be everything they can be, as a society, we're so much weaker for it. And so I, I hope we can create organisations and communities where we help people to thrive and flourish and be everything they can be. And that that's kind of what gets me out of bed and you know, keeps me excited. So that would be my mantra is help people be the best they can be. Totally, totally love that. That's a great note to end on. Toby Holt, thank you for joining me. Good on you. It's been a great discussion. Well, there you have it. That's my conversation with Toby Hall in this episode 146. I love the focus on people that was evident throughout this entire episode, both in Toby's childhood memories and how he's become a leader and learned the importance of people, trust, vulnerability, and communication despite being in various industries and stages of a business. 
So I hope you enjoyed this episode 146. And as always, let me know your thoughts on the conversation. All my details are in the show notes. And I'll catch you very soon 